if they can drive out fear, relinquish the need for a sense of control, whatever that might be to them. And I, and I believe that each, each leader would have their own definition of what control is. Those two things, if fear and control can be eradicated, then, uh, then employees respond to that. People respond to that. And I would think that that would be powerful foundation for a thriving, highly effective, continuous improvement kind of a mindset in an organization. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Hello, I'm Brian Gorman, the host of Conversations powered by Quantivos and a Quantivos coach. And with me today is Dave Kane, another of our Quantivos coaches. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. So, Dave, let's begin by just telling us a little bit about Dave Kane and your journey to this topic that we're talking about today, which is leadership in the 21st century. Uh, I am a, an executive, certified executive coach. I've been, uh, been coaching since 2006, and I've had my own company since 2010. And uh, so today, my, my mission is advance leadership anywhere that I can, uh, help people learn it, perform it better, et cetera, all the above. Um, before that, I had a career, uh, about a 26-year career in, in uh, supervision and management. It included six years in the Navy. Uh, I've worked in uh, Fortune 500 companies, union and non-union, and uh, decided uh, that it was time to leave the the corporate world and, and become a coach. Uh, and, and what prompted that that decision was I, I had a coach. I worked for Quaker Oats in Louisville, and I had a coach. And that coach um, was very, very impactful to my career, to my mindset, to my skill set. And I thought that's the kind of person I want to be. That's the, that's what I want to do when I grow up, kind of thing. So, uh, based on that relationship, I went went to grad school. I got that taken care of, and then when I had the chance, I, I broke into into consulting. Prior to that, you know, youngest of seven kids, grew up in the Chicago suburbs, private education. So I had some pretty refined views of what leadership was, and then come to find out when I was a practitioner of leadership that my refined views needed to be refined even further because they were. Pretty, pretty much inaccurate or incomplete at best. Leadership in the 21st century, how is that different than what you grew up with? You know, growing up, I was exposed a lot to the Vietnam War and then the, the end of a presidency. And that shook my view of what leadership was because I was going to parochial schools. You're, you're given a pretty clear idea of what leadership is. And suddenly I realized that leaders could be imperfect, I guess. So I, I began to pay close attention to that. I began to pay close attention to how I responded to leadership as an employee. What kind of leadership got the best out of me, for example, and I, and I aspired to be that leader. And then when I was given the chance to be in a leadership role, I wanted to be that leader that, all, that I'd wanted my whole life and that I thought that my employees wanted me to be. But the problem with that was I didn't know 
what to do. I mean, it was, it was, it was very instinctive. It was practical. It wasn't deliberate. It just feels right. So I'll, I'll say this or I'll behave that way rather than being more intentional about it. That was my history around, around leadership. Now, as I, as I look at leadership in 2022, I'm, I'm reminded, you know, you, you hear things in social media, you know, quiet quitting in social media has discovered quiet quitting as if, wow, it's this new thing. Well, I, I would submit that quiet quitting has been going on for as long as there's been leaders and employees. But yet now we have a name for it. We've had this We, we had another name. We had a lot of other names for it, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, used to be retiring on the job, right? Yeah, but this is this is not new. And I'm asking my, you know, so and we, we talk about Starbucks becoming unionized, Amazon becoming unionized. I'm thinking, wow, haven't we learned anything about leadership, about management? It just feels like we're, we're just learning all over. And new, new generation, right? So generations change and, and people are learning these ideas anew. And yet in the rearview mirror is is all my leadership experience. And I, and I say, wow, I, I look out the, the windshield of my life and I say, we're no better off there. So, I, you know, my belief is that it's time to take a, a look at this, ask some questions and, and help people kind of reframe how they relate to leadership in the 21st century. Because I think the model that we're following is probably an industrial revolution age model, right? This is over 100 years old. But yet look at how our country has changed in, the, in that time period and, and look at advances. And let's just say aviation, for example, think about where aviation was at the turn of the 20th century and look where it is now. Can you say the same thing about our relationship to leadership? I would say no. <laughs> I would say no. <laughs> but, you know, but again, I, I'm, I'm sure a social scientist would weigh in and say, wait a minute, social change doesn't happen at quite the rate that technical change can happen. OK, fair enough. But it just seems like that we there's some lessons to be learned that we haven't learned yet or questions to be asked that we haven't asked yet. So I have questions. So, Dave, you mentioned generational change. And I think that is a, a great place to really kick off the conversation because A, generational change is real and B, each generation is coming into the workplace with a different set of expectations, in some senses a different work ethic, different ways of relating, of communicating, all of those kinds of things, which to me says I need to lead them differently. Totally agree. So the challenging question for me, and I, I need to lead them differently is, so uh, do a little bit of a deep dive here is what does leading look like? What does that mean? And and I would even submit just again for consideration is do we have a clear understanding of what the definition of a leader is versus the definition of a manager? Do we even know what those words mean? Uh, yeah, let's go there. Yeah. All right. So, you know, you and I, we're, we're, we both read a few books and, and had a few conversations and, you know, people will throw these words out. They'll say, you know, manager when they really mean leader or the other. And I'm not sure that I'm clear in my head, you know, what the difference is. You know, one of the, one of the easy Adages is we manage things, we lead people. Okay, that's that's probably the best distinction, or, or at least the one that works for me. So if if we're dealing with a system, well, I have to manage the system. But guess what? People populate the system, so I need to have some skills to be able to look strategically as well as tactically. But then I also need to understand. Wow, there's these human beings that makes this this system even more complex. Do I even know when I'm putting a manager hat on and taking my leader hat off, and vice versa? Can I even articulate some of those subtleties? And I think the answers to most of those is no. I don't think people can articulate those subtleties. They don't know. Yeah, year, years ago I, I learned, and I think it was Peter Drucker's definition of leaders make sure we're doing the right things and managers make sure we're doing them right. And again, I think the the environment and the, the social development has shifted that. So that definition 
for me, doesn't even seem to work anymore. So that probably shines a light on, on another question that I have is, is around you know, uh, definition. Well, we talked about definitions. I would ask, what is the definition of uh, an effective leader? And if I'm coaching someone and they want to be a more effective leader, we're left with what's most important to them. Well, what's on their mind right now versus perhaps a more objective self-analysis of, well, I'm, I'm uh, good at communicating, but I'm not really good at asking open-ended questions. Wow, I would probably fall off my chair if one of my clients said something like that, that clearly thought out kind of a statement. It's, I'm just not a good communicator, uh, or I don't communicate well, or whatever, whatever the, the challenge or the issue might be. And, and I'm left with the conclusion at this stage in my career that we don't have, a, I'll, I'll make it first person, I've not been exposed to uh, a lot of people or organizations that can articulate, let's call it discrete leadership skills, that an effective leader can execute these eight discrete skills pretty well. And here's the skills, and here's how we define the skills, here's how we train to the skills, here's how we can measure a leader's effectiveness in those skills. And a way to compare this or a way to frame this for me is to is to think about, go back to aviation for a second, think about a pilot. In order to get a commercial aviation pilot's license, you are gonna go through some theory, you're gonna go through some practicum, you're gonna be graded, you're gonna be measured, you're gonna be assessed in a lot of very discrete skills. And only upon successful completion of those skills are you then granted you know, the opportunity to wear the wings. But we, we don't do that with leaders. It wasn't done with me when I was first given the chance to lead people. Nobody asked me, hey, Dave, tell me how good of a communicator you are. Tell me about how you hold people accountable. Tell me about what expectations mean to you, et cetera, et cetera. And, and whatever these dis- discrete skills might be, is, is also a matter of a debate, right? Discussion. Talk about an airline pilot. We know pretty well. I want you to be able to take off. I want you to be able to land. You know, we can say what those discrete skills are that we want from a commercial aviation pilot. But can we say what those discrete skills are when it comes to a leader? Interesting question. I think before even getting into skills, there are different philosophies around leadership. At its grossest, if you will, you have McGregor, Douglas McGregor's Theory X, Theory Y. Employees are lazy and worthless, basically, Theory X, and I need to micromanage them and theory why people tend to bring their best selves to work. Those two mindsets, if you will, or, or, or some variation of them, really dictate, in a way, the skills that you need to be effective. My own bias is that Theory X should be long out the door, and it's not. I was a drill sergeant back in the 1970s, uh, toward the end of, of the Vietnam War. And even then, I personally felt it important that those that I was training realized that they had choice. They had choice between following orders or or not. And there were consequences for each of those choices. And there were consequences if the orders were not legitimate and they, they chose to follow them. So even there, my philosophy was People are going to do the right thing, and they have choice about that. So that sounds like the you know a culture right that you've created and made it safe. Right, I'm a big believer in a leader's responsibility and making it safe, so that people can make the right decisions and can do the right things when they're required without you having to have eyes on them or people doing the right thing even when you're not in the room. That's <laughs> that's one of my self-assigned distinctions of effective leadership is set up that culture to be able to make that choice. We still have leaders and some some pretty big name leaders today that, that seem to be coming much more from the Theory X style of leadership. I just recently read an article where I think it's seven out of the 10 largest companies in the U.S. track keystrokes. <laughs> What does that say about the relationship between leaders and those who work for them? Well, it says that it's out to me. It says that it's outdated. You know, that goes back to the 
you know, the I Love Lucy episode of Lucy trying to inspect quality into her chocolates, right? And she she obviously <laughs> couldn't do it. So she chose to just, you know, kind of blow the system up. But it, it's how we, how leaders relate to human beings. Is this a command and control role or is this a facilitative role? And to your point, it's about the decision that you as a leader make and what you understand about relationships and your behavior. I was very interested in, in my self-awareness journey that I was brought up to believe that leadership was pretty pretty cut and dried. Like I said, you know, my education, my home experience, uh, but then come to find out, no, that's not the case at all. There was a hunger there to make sure that self-awareness was finely tuned and, and finally listening and listening to my employees. You know, I, I think my employees, in addition to having a, a coach that was so value added for me, my employees employees were value added for me. They told me when I screwed up and they survived that. And then we went on and we grew. So it was, it was about my worldview and, and my level of emotional intelligence and my ego and things like that. Fortunately for me, maybe having four sisters had something to do with that because whatever ego I might've grown up with got kind of hammered down, you know, four sisters and two older brothers, they didn't tolerate ego out of me. So that, that made kind of made me a, a, a good, uh, probably a good test case as a supervisor and as a manager. For me, it's all about the worldview. And in my view, you know, on that on that note, you know, I, re I read a book not too long ago called Invisible Women by Carolyn Perez. And that was without question the most difficult book I've ever read because it indicted a myopic mindset that people that look like me seem to have that influenced what she pointed out was the way people think about leadership and about relating to people was very myopic and it was very centric on people that look just like me rather than people that look like the, the general population. So the, what she taught me, she reaffirmed the stuff that I understood growing up about how do I relate to people? How do I relate to, to employees, if you will? And what's my worldview? And do I give them the choice or do I do I snag the choice from them? And that's been a, been a journey of self-awareness for me is to make sure that, and as a coach especially, the choice is not about what I think. The choice is always about what the client thinks. It's always what's important to them. And as a coach, I have the responsibility to, to help them sort that out, but not to dictate it or direct it. And in the absence of, so the way, the way these pieces fit together for me in the absence of a set of discrete skills that even help me understand the what I need to do to be an effective leader. We haven't even talked about what are the ideologies that I bring to the leadership table and, and what's my worldview and how does that influence my leadership? And whew, this gets pretty complicated. I don't hear in the reading and in the podcast that I listen to, I don't hear this conversation happening anywhere. So it's it's fascinating to me that we're not there yet. I think we, we should be there. I would yeah, like a, us to be there, but we're not there. A while back, I had a conversation with Nancy Murphy. Nancy is really driven, if you will, around the importance of bringing not just women, but more of those attributes and, and mindsets that women bring into leadership positions. And uh, she tells a story. She was invited to participate in a leadership development program at a university, realized that she was the only woman out of many faculty members, all of whom looked like you and I, older generation, white males, that none of the books on the reading list were written by women. And so they invite her. Basically, they said, if, if you know any women leaders who have written anything, we'll consider adding a book to the reading list kind of response. And so Nancy talks about things like closed versus open mindset, growth mindset. She talks about things like you and I have talked about offline, asking questions and listening. I have a, a good friend who for years worked for Eileen Fisher, and 
for many years, Eileen Fisher was a highly female-dominated C-suite. And they did things like no conference table. We sit in a circle. There isn't somebody at the head. We're all here collaboratively to, to lead this organization. Very different mindsets. I love that. I, I absolutely love the open-mindedness of that, the uh, minimizing of the ego of that. It's, it's, I had a discussion over the, over the weekend with my wife and her cousin ab- about that, about, you know, are people that look like you and I, are we, are we properly suited to continue the, the holding the mantle of leadership, carrying the mantle of leadership into the 21st century? And, and the agreement between the three of us was, well, not no, but maybe, maybe there's a hybrid that would be more effective for, for everyone. And that's a great example is how many men would be comfortable sitting around without the comfort and the protection of that conference table and how many would be able to engage completely and fully. And this is why I referred earlier to, to you know being safe. I would love to watch that organization work. I'd love to be part of that because that's a real, well, they're going to come up with some ideas that are really going to be change agent type ideas rather than the the cadence or the pace of, of whoever is leading this thing and controlling the level of safety that everybody feels in the room. And I think that that men are just, my explanation this weekend was, look, men have led in this country, at least uh, a very competitive very reward-driven, winner-take-all kind of a mentality. That's great. And that idea, in all fairness, it won World War One and it won World War Two, more or less. But then things started to change after that. And so you, if you look at our performance militarily, you could say, wow, is there some cultural parallel between our military superiority and our ability to adapt socially? I never really looked at it that way, but there, there could be something to that. But is the, is is a solely, is moving for the next 100 years, the way we are today going to be the answer? I don't think it is. I think it needs to change. I think it needs to be more inclusive. Otherwise, businesses are going to start to fail. I mean, it is Jeff Bezos scratching his head, wondering why are his facilities wanting to become unionized? Is, I, I just wonder what he's thinking about that and why that might be the case. And what was his paradigm about leadership and about managing human beings that led to that? So that's very interesting to me, uh, the, the cultural change. It, and it is change, Brian. It's As you know, this is we're talking about a cultural change. What are going to be some of the triggers for this change to accelerate a little bit? Because it's pretty slow, if you ask me. So just one one more comment going back to Eileen Fisher. The friend of mine who worked there actually headed up their program where each employee received an allocation for personal development. So you could take yoga lessons. You could take meditation lessons. You could gym memberships, whatever. So very much a focus on the well-being of the people who work in the organization as a way to strengthen their contribution to the organization. When you and I were talking before we started recording, you mentioned fear. And it was interesting that when you were talking about male leaders sitting around in a circle without a table to protect them, that fear theme sort of comes up again for me. What role do you see fear playing in leadership today? I think it's profound. I think it's up there with ego. As much as a person might be driven, you might ask, driven by what? Driven by the desire to have, as, as one boss I had once said, are you are you driven by salary, title, or size of your office? I, oh, I never looked at it that way before. So is someone afraid of, I think fear is huge to answer your question. I, th- I think fear is, a, is a, a, an absolute driver and everybody's fear is is unique. Everyone has a, the thing that they're afraid of is just different. And because of the, the pace of business today, because of our tendency to not look at the, the whole human being, like you were just talking about, the whole employee, we're not just dealing with you for a 40 or 50 hour week, whether it's at home or at the office, we're dealing with a human being that has an entire life. Are we managing 
are we <laughs> managing, leading that person to the benefit of their life, which would then be based on discretionary effort theory, would that be to the benefit of the company's life as well? So I believe that people have an individual fear journey. I took it upon myself to drive out fear. Recently, Microsoft announced a shift from a focus on employee engagement to employee thriving. And they define thriving as being energized and empowered to do meaningful work. What kind of leadership is required for an environment of thriving? My first reaction to that is one without fear, where leaders have an adaptive skill set that is very highly emotionally intelligent, that is very elastic in the in the ability to sort through challenges that they may bring to the table, and one that just doesn't have fear in it. Because you know, one word we haven't used so far, Brian, is control. Right? I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded of the scene in Jurassic Park where uh, it's made very clear control is an illusion, and I believe that for a leader that wants to control whatever that might mean to them, they are going to be substandard. Their performance, they and their their organization is gonna is gonna have some level of substandard performance. It's not going to be optimally effective. But if they can drive out fear, relinquish the need for a sense of control, whatever that might be to them. And I, and I believe that each, each leader would have their own definition of what control is. Those two things, if fear and control can be eradicated, then, uh, then employees respond to that. People respond to that. And I would think that that would be powerful foundation for a thriving, highly effective, continuous improvement kind of a mindset in an organization. I would love to work in an organization like that. One of the things that really jumped out to me at that in that definition is meaningful work. You know, we have heard for years the bombardment of, of negativity around millennials who keep up and leaving and up and leaving. And yet, when you look at the reasons driving those departures, a big piece of it is there's no meaning in the work. So again, a leader without fear asking employees, what is meaningful work to you can make such a difference in whether the employees thrive and when employees are thriving, whether the organization is thriving. When you say that, I'm reminded of the, the Steve Jobs idea of, you know, we hire good people and then we get out of their way. Why would you spend so much time and energy in the selection process, uh, getting the best person you could possibly get and then put handcuffs on them once they get into the organization? It's beyond me, to be honest with you. Dave, we're going to have to wrap this conversation up. We've got a lot of good ideas, good thoughts, and, and big questions out there. Any last words on leadership in the 21st century? Big question. Uh, I don't know how to stimulate a conversation at a larger scale that, that asks that question and, and prompts that dialogue. So for me, the mission is just keep keep asking the question, keep looking for the opportunities. Like podcasts like this, Brian, to ask these questions and discuss uh, in, in an open forum what is right and where do we want to go. Not to try to achieve a specific goal, but simply to explore where we are at in our journey and ask if it's okay or if it's not, and then what are we going to do about it. It's time to ask some direct, straightforward questions and deal with the dialogue. Dave Kane, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Brian Gorman. Much appreciated. <laughs> 